Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, hello, you beautiful people. Thank you very much for downloading this particular podcast or streaming it or watching it on YouTube, however you're consuming it. I appreciate that you are here. And that's that's how you start most of these conversations, right? A nice compliment to you know soften you up. So you're like, you know what? Yeah, I actually am going to listen to this whole podcast. Joking aside, I am incredibly excited to welcome Bobby Ferry from the legendary, and I don't use those words lightly, legendary sludge doom rock band called 16. If you are not familiar, get familiar. They have a ton of records out, but most recently they released a record on Relapse Records that is incredible. Really, really enjoy what they uh, they do in general. So I couldn't pass up the opportunity to speak to Bobby because Part of what makes 16 so cool is they existed alongside of many, many bands within the Orange County punk and hardcore scene. They have a lot of ties within to this whole thing that I hold so dear. And they, I, I would say from a, uh, you know, like if you're looking at like a class ranking perspective, like maybe when I was in junior high, they were seniors. So these are people I, w- I would look up to. So anyways, and the name of their record is called Into Dust and it just came out in Relapse Records. I highly encourage you checking that out. But Bobby was a great hang. We'll talk more about him in a moment. First of all, if you are noticing that my voice is noticeably deeper, it is because I am sick, so I apologize for that, or maybe a little bit more nasally. Uh, yeah, I just got sick over the weekend, and you know this, this podcast has to come out, so of course I'm going to make sure that you, the listener, are engaged, even if I am a little nasally. But uh, thank you for your well wishes. I appreciate that. I know every single one of you said that when I just said that, so thank you. Appreciate that. You can also please support the show on any medium that you consume the podcast, preferably Apple Podcasts, where you can toss a star rating. Or if you're feeling very kind, I pay close attention to all the reviews that are left on there from a you know word perspective. If you were saying something kind, I do appreciate that. Uh, and then on Spotify, you can just toss a very simple star rating that helps out the show and makes it legitimate in the eyes of the algorithm. Because after all, is that that's what we're all looking for, right? No, that's a sad state of affairs, but it just makes this show more visible to people who do need to hear about it. And you can always email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I know those of you that listen to the show on a week-in and week-out basis hear me say that all the time, but you know, there's people that just dip in and out, and I just want to remind you. That's my job here as a host, to remind you. And uh, like I have mentioned on previous episodes before, I published these interviews on YouTube, so you can follow that in the show notes. You just tap on your your platform that you were listening to this podcast on, you'll see a nice little hyperlink. You can click that, subscribe, lickety split, done and done. And you can also interact with some of our sponsors on there as well, like Rockabilly and Evil Greed. Love those people. And for this episode, Mutant League Records as well. But 
let's talk about Bobby. He, um, I mean, I knew he was a, a, a real head in regards to the type of scene that they grew up in. And, you know, we're talking like late 80s, early 90s stuff. But man, Bobby and I went really deep and it was very fun to talk about the Orange County skating scene. Um, also, the fact like he's just very happy that the band 16 still exists because they've gone through a, um, you know, pretty interesting and sometimes harrowing journey in regards to drug use and abuse and all that stuff. But um, yeah, they, they still keep cranking out the bummer jams, which is what they're known for. So anyways, Bobby Ferry is happening right now. Admittedly, I really didn't get into your band until uh, it was the the split seven inch that you put out with uh, Treadwell, which is very random. But uh, I think to me, it speaks to the fact that 16 has always just kind of done your thing and got out there how you guys can, whether or not, um, you know, the a split or whatever it was that you guys were doing. It's just like, oh, yeah, like that makes sense. I guess I guess we'll do that and we'll have fun with that. Um does it does it i guess kind of feel that way like being in the band where it's just like you know opportunities come up and you're like that sounds cool let's do it versus um you know maybe the other way where it's like a band has some you know drawn out plan where they're going to (laughs) execute i you know i i try to enter things with as little expectation as possible but our our or you know my guiding philosophy is i literally we say yes to everything most gigs uh, most things, uh, you know, I like, there's not a, a decision tree that, uh, guides our thinking with, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, with split seven inches or anything like that. It's like, do we like you as people? Do we like your music? Cool. Do we have the songs? Excellent. Then let's do it. You know, <laughs> it's just kind of like, I, I don't know. I I'm, I'm kind of anti-deliberation on things like that of being, almost preconceived. I just like, you know, like, do you want to go on this tour? Yes. Yes. We'll do it. Aren't you going to check with the other guys? No. Cause I know their answer is yes. Cause we say yes t- to damn near everything. <laughs> I, I do like the simplicity, especially, I mean, now that you have obviously existed in this band for quite some time and you get to know other people's uh, willingness to do things or not do things. And so I, I just like that idea. It's like, oh yeah, we'll say yes. And if for whatever reason, someone says no in the band, like we'll probably get them to a point where they'll say yes. Like it'll be fine. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. I mean, well, it's not, nothing's really forced, but it's just like our track history of going on crazy adventures is really good. <laughs> right. We, the things that we say yes to generally end up working out in the in the long run even if it seems like a bad idea like you know the money doesn't make sense or whatever it just seems to work out uh, you know so it, there's really no no nothing to flip uh we just kind of you know trudge is does it move things forward cool let's go right <laughs> and I, I guess hitting on that would with the split with Treadwell, I know it's just a really random, like, you know, I think some like check label or whatever. <laughs> How did that even come about? Was it just like, oh, this label reached out and said, hey, you want to do a split or you knew the guys in Treadwell? I, uh, you know, I've never even talked to them. I never know them or anything. Amazing. Um, it was uh, a, a guy, uh, Badman Records, uh, and he put out a box set that was really cool with like floor, um, I, I don't know, a bunch of, uh, Batman records. I, I really don't even remember, um, but it was, you know, it was a cool idea um, that he had, uh, you know, a, a four, I think it was a seven inch with four, seven inches in it in a box. And sure. I really liked, I really liked all the other bands on there. So I was like, cool. And then he asked later, you know, a couple years later, do you want to split? And it's like, yeah, we got the song. Cool. There you go. Right. <laughs> and I, I mean, I do think the, the the split, you know, seven inch or twelve inch, like, still exists. But I, I definitely, it feels like a lost art in the idea of either being able to commemorate a tour or you know commemorate a friendship between two bands. I, I think that's 
you know, it, like I said, it still does exist, but it feels a little bit more um, intangible these days. And I just love that reaction. Like, oh, do you have a song? Sure. Let's let's do it. I mean, to this day, we still do things like this. <laughs> yeah. You got a song? Hit 16 up and we can do a split. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, well, you know, uh, we, we become more discerning now. Yes. Uh, you know, you can't be like a uh, shitty people, right. uh, you know, that's and, you know, generally we have to like your music. So, yeah, right, right. Yeah. You're the the filter exists. It's not like a wide open barn door, but you want to make sure that it's like, oh, yeah, like that feels good. The band's cool. Like, let's do it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll hit on more of the uh you know band decisions and stuff like that as we go through the uh discussion but i wanted to focus on you because i know you were born and raised in the orange county area myself as well and um knowing that a lot of people have perceptions of how orange county is throughout the years would you say that your experience was kind of like typical growing up in orange county as far as like you know i mean i know skateboarding was a big thing for you um was it was it kind of typical what you were seeing with your friends being raised in Orange County, or was that um, a completely different experience than most of your peers? Um, no, no, you know, I, I got the quintessential Orange County experience of you know going on the sixty five bus from Tustin to Newport Beach to surf. I uh, you know grew up surfing and skateboarding, and literally the the California thing. I, I never played any organized sports. I was always uh, into punk uh, and then later metal and skateboarding and surfing. Like I literally got the, you know, the, the troubled kid who just hangs around the skate ramps. Uh, you know, that was basically my, my MO, but I did get the quintessential uh, Orange County, California experience. Um, and everything they say about it is true. So I couldn't wait to turn 18 and, and leave. So, right, uh, right, you know, like it's a, it's like a, a conservative bastion of tons of traffic and just, you know, not the greatest people, at least, you know, I'm sure it's fine. Uh, they're just, they're just not, not my folks. Anymore. Right. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> totally understand that. And I think too, especially because was this, you were a teenager kind of mostly in the mid to late eighties, you would say. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that time was very interesting just because you had this collision of all of these subcultures from, you know, punk becoming more aware uh, as far as, you know, shows and obviously the violent scene that many people reflect on, but then the prominence of skateboarding and places for people to have access to that. And then, like you said, surfing, like all of that was happening, which I think is unique just based on the geography of our area. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where did you grow up? Uh, primarily in Newport Beach, and that's where I'm at currently. Oh. And um, yeah, okay. but just, you know, definitely understand that a lot of people just kind of like look at Orange County as this weirdo place that's like oh yeah it's you know very wealthy and weather's always cool but then like you said there's a conservative element and then it's like how did you get into like punk and hardcore it's like well it's you know it's been running through the, the veins of this scene for quite some time yeah oh yeah you know the cuckoo's nest <laughs> fenders <laughs> totally totally yeah. it's so how like Describe to me your, uh, I guess, family structure, the brothers and sisters, um, you know, mom and dad in the house. What did that look like? Um, my, my parents got divorced. We moved to uh, an, a, an apartment complex for uh, transcendental meditators. It was almost a commune in Tustin uh, where people followed the Maharishi. And that was like in 1983. So I, I come from a kind of strange background like that. Um, I was already skateboarding and being left at the skate park in Orange uh, as daycare. I was like six, seven years old uh, and, you know, got, a, you know, got to have, you know, mentors and older friends uh, that were, you know, were good dudes that were into that were into punk, you know, that were into uh, Black Flag, into Devo, um, you know, adolescence, all that stuff. Uh, at a super young age, like, like literally like probably from like 1980. Uh, and so, um, my mom, 
uh, met another transcendental meditator guy there at Tustin. Uh, ironically enough, there was also a, uh, a big community of uh, Scientologists there too in Tustin. So it was a bit of the, my cult is better than your cult type of thing. Uh, going on that's why uh, that's wild i had no idea that there was that contingency in orange county i mean most people especially with scientology look to you know hollywood and obviously the celebrity nature behind that i just had no idea that there was a strain in orange county like that yeah tustin had a big uh scientology center that you know everybody in when i became in high school uh you know be out skating or going to parties or just, just loafing around the streets like we did uh you know they'd come around and be like hey do you want to watch a free movie and it was right by my house so we'd say yes and then we just take off uh so we'd get a free free ride home all the time and they would uh you know curse us that they hope you know i remember a lady screaming at me when i ran away from her that i hope you break your leg you know Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. And and when did you, like you said, because you kind of were able to look at your, you know, being raised within these communities as a little bit of a different experience. When did you, I guess, realize that like, oh, maybe having this, you know, these religious experiences and being raised in these communities was not like what everyone else was experiencing. Oh, day one, day one. Okay, got it. You know, I've always been like fairly independent minded too. So I just felt like everybody was full of shit. Even as a little kid, I just thought you're just full of shit. Um, And, you know, that that kind of attitude serves me well as an adult. But, you know, kind of. But from day one, because we were different in the community. Uh, For one, you know, we lived in apartments in a a fairly affluent area, Uh, you know. And uh, so a lot of my friends, you know, lived in the Tustin Hills and these very nice, uh, idyllic uh, middle class settings. So but, you know, every, uh, but it also taught me that everybody's the same as well, you know. Sure. Absolutely. Was the, like you said, you were, you know, getting into uh, punk and skateboarding kind of around the same time. How was it, you know, really Thrasher Mag that was kind of guiding you along to the, you know, bands that you should get into and listen to? Um, Was it, you know, any siblings or friends that were kind of bouncing stuff off of you? You know, uh, well, this is when uh, skate skate videos first came out, um, you know, in the sixth grade, seventh grade. So they had a lot like the vision video had a whole soundtrack by Agent Orange uh, hanging around. Basically, you know, it was punk and hardcore were closely aligned uh, with skate culture. Um, I really never had any money to buy a thrasher or anything like that, but I was always a younger kid who was pretty good at skateboarding. Uh, so I had lots of, you know, older brother types uh, that, you know, I'd, I'd hang out at the same skate ramps or different pools every day. And it was like, whatever's playing or whatever I could get a ride to. It's like, you know, they all liked black flag. And then when Slayer came in when I was a teenager, I was like, what is this? Uh, you know, uh, hearing Slayer, Rain and Blood. And then, you know, Metallica was always there as well. Uh, you know, sure. Um, so there was already kind of a crossover happening even uh, in the days of junior high. Oh boy, rockabilia.com is the place where you at this point should have purchased all of your Christmas presents. But if you have not done that, I totally understand. Just go ahead and put this podcast down and go to their website, rockabilia.com, and you will be able to purchase officially licensed merch using this code. Please use the code because it gives you 10% off of your entire order, 100 words or less, 10% off. They offer, I don't care what you're into, whether it's Led Zeppelin, Bob Marley, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, Misfits, I could go on, but you get it. They cast a very wide net and make sure that you, the consumer, are very satisfied with high-quality merch, all officially licensed, ships in the United States of America to you, lickety-split. And, um, you know, maybe if you get in an order quick enough, you'll be able to get it turned around by Christmas. not going to make any promises because, you know, I do not work for the U.S. Postal Service. So just making that abundantly clear If you, in case you were confused. But rockabilly.com, I am not confused with. I am in love with what they do and they will ship merch to you for whoever it is you are looking to either buy a gift for or frankly just buy some for yourself using the promo code 100 words or less thank you very much for your continued support rockabilia and i guess on that topic was your attraction to you know these aggressive styles of music and things that 
your parents probably had very little context for. Were they uh, concerned about you? Or it's like, what is Bobby getting into? What's this weird music he's bringing home? Totally funny. So um, I, you know, I hung out at the record store ever since I was a little kid uh, and would basically shoplift, uh, not, uh, not from the record store, but other places and take things back like cross pens. I used to be quite the little thief when I was like 10 to 12 <laughs> years old. Uh, and then I would go buy records or tapes and, uh, I had a 12 inch of the touch and go, uh, big black songs about fucking. And I bought it and then my parents discovered it and took it away. <laughs> sure. And then when I was like in my twenties, my mom gave it back and she's like, I took this away from you. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is totally valuable. Thank you. <laughs> Dude, wow, that's incredible that she boomeranged it back to you so many years later. Yeah, yeah, you know, the, the whole, I turned out okay. <laughs> right, right, that's funny. Yeah. Um, and did you? I know you said that you didn't play any organized sports and you were into you know, surfing and skateboarding. Did you care about school at all? Was it one of those things that you, you know, just kind of did the bare minimum to get by, or was there certain subjects that you were attracted to? Um, no, I. You know, I, I, they put me in some kind of gifted English and history, uh, in early high school, uh, when they had what's called a gate program, uh, probably tested in there, but I, I've always been a, a chronic, uh, non-complier of like school. I, 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 I ditched a lot, uh, to go skate and to go surf like a lot. I, I mean, I graduated, I'd hold it down, but, um, if it was something I enjoyed, no, uh, you know, aside from English class of, you know, reading Catcher in the Rye or Albert Camus or Jean-Paul Sartre or whatever, uh, you know, and that morphed into reading, you know, Hunter S. Thompson and Bukowski and, you know, and then Steinbeck and all that. So I, I did have a kind of literary foundation, but I never enjoyed school. Like I used to just literally skate past it. I would like be like, nope, not doing it. <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> yeah. Just hop on the bus and, and go to, you know, go to 56th Street in Newport Beach or go to the pier or go to Hell Curve in Costa Mesa or go to some ditch somewhere. I like I ditch school chronically. Yeah. Was there any hopes of you getting, uh, you know, sponsored? Like, I mean, I know that at that juncture, there was so so much uncertainty in regards to like, is this going to be like a sport or a thing or, you know, is it just going to be me getting into a video or anything like that? Was there any hopes of the uh, sponsorship aspect? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, um, it was just, you know, skateboarding was just the whole, the, everything, um, you know, and when street skateboarding came in, uh, Ray Barbie went to the high school and there was like four, of us skateboarders in like the ninth and 10th grade. Okay. And Ray, Ray Barbie was already sponsored by uh, Alva. Uh, and, you know, just having him around and skating, I had a ramp and spending every day basically with Ray Barbie for a number of years, everybody leveled up. So everyone got sponsored. Um, you know, I rode for foundation and, uh, uh, geez, uh, who else did I ride for? Um, uh, venture trucks, foundation, Spitfire wheels, whatever, you know, um, oh, shop, cool. shop contests, um, you know, and then like our, our high school was a definitely breeding ground for pro skaters. And, and so was our area, you know, Ronnie Bertino, Heath, Heath Kirchart, uh, Josh Beagle. I got Josh Beagle on foundation who lead it later, got Heath on foundation. Uh, so like we definitely had an impact and then, you know, we hung around Jason Lee and Mark Gonzalez, uh, and the whole Huntington Beach people. So there was like, I, I think our little little circle definitely laid the foundation for modern street skating. Um, you know, like you can, there's there's YouTube videos of, I have like braces and shit, you know. <laughs> Dude, that's incredible. I love, I mean, especially to being able to trace the lines of all of these subcultures colliding and then how important it was to have both where it's like yeah i love skating but then this aggressive music is perfect for the soundtrack for me to skate and then it felt so much like the diy shows you start to pull together where it's like oh yeah we got a hall and playing for 100 people same thing as like you know a competition at a local skate park or whatever same sort of principle yeah yeah for sure that's cool um 
with what were some like as you started to go deeper down the rabbit hole of getting into you know punk hardcore metal and all that sort of stuff what were some of the early bands and shows that you kind of went to that really you know flipped your lid as far as maybe wanting to try to play in a band or have participate in the scene in a more active way uh so you know this whole time uh, i was always playing guitar and all my friends either play guitar bass or drums so it's like everyone knew somebody who could you know pick up a guitar and and you know play something uh in like a acoustic campfire way or led zeppelin way it was just kind of the kids we were um so um but as as far as the pivotal shows uh really when i um i was 16 and i got a fake id uh that said i was 21 and i i named myself uh robert j mascus because I like Dinosaur <laughs> Jr. Uh, and, uh, and it was a real ID. I, I, we actually made fake birth certificates and went to the DMV before the th- thumb printing and just got like these fake IDs, uh, fake driver's license that, sure. you know, when we were 16, it said we were 22 or something. And a whole bunch of us had him. And then, you know, we'd get caught skating someplace and just rack up trespassing tickets on it and just who caves a shit and just get another one um so that opened us up to a lot of shows so i saw um you know early in high school in like 10th grade i saw uh, you know jane's addiction at the anti-club i you know i saw um who else did i see i mean i saw a bunch i went to all the shows i saw the first i saw the first rollins band show in la with uh, the circle jerks i believe that was really pivotal uh, and then later on, um, I think when I was about 18, I still had that same ID that said I was 21. I started going to a club in Long Beach. Uh, I did go to Fenders and I saw Bad Brains and uh, I saw Bad Brains at the Reseda Country Club. Mm-hmm. And that was like life changing. Uh, seeing Bad Religion there at the Reseda Country Club was life changing. Seeing Fugazi there uh, was, you know, a seminal uh, and then I started hanging around uh, Bogarts in Long Beach and, you know, saw the first wave of amphetamine reptile bands. Uh, you know, I saw Unsane. I saw Jesus Lizard. I saw the John Spencer Blues Explosion. I saw, you know, Boss Hog. I saw Helmet, uh, Tad. Uh, I saw Nirvana on, on that tour, on the, the Bleach tour. You know, the whole time I'm like 17 or, you know, 18 years old, getting into 21-year-old places. That's incredible. Uh, so like, you know, I saw, I, I, I saw a bunch of really, you know, what I thought, and I still think it's like total rock history. Um, and that just was so inspiring, you know, um, right. especially, especially the way their approach was like a band like Jesus Lizard, you know, you could see they could play their instruments, but they didn't care about traditional anything. Yep. Anything at all. Totally. Right. Well, and especially too, I, I think that that scene was so pivotal because they you know bands of that nature were making music that was incredibly challenging for most people um and you know but had elements that could get people into the idea that's like you know it's not throbbing gristle it's like okay there's verses and choruses but there's nothing that is like oh my gosh this is unattainable this is like eight minutes of noise or whatever even though sometimes bands like that would obviously do that like unsane um but to your point of just the idea that you were watching something that was so, you know, sort of connected to scenes, but not connected to scenes at the same time. And you felt like you were participating <laughs> just by being at the show in ways that, you know, other people that go to concerts obviously don't feel. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, you know. that, that's incredible. And so when you started to go to those shows, and like I know that you have articulated before with other interviews you've done that, you know, that AMREP scene was so pivotal for 16 kind of getting their starts. Did you like, as you started to go to those shows, did you be like, yes, I want to play in a band, whatever that means? Uh, yeah, me and, uh, you know, the singer that was previously in uh, 16, uh Chris Giroux, you know, we were uh, really good friends and he couldn't play anything, but he was a bit of a, um, a sketchy human, uh, meaning he would definitely yell at people uh, and things like that. And, you know, had a good, he had a, a vibe and a momentum to his personality where we're like, well, this guy's a perfect front man. 
uh, talent be damned. Uh, he can at least yell at people. Uh, so that was kind of like, you know, we, we would just hang out and skate in parking lots in the middle of the night and, you know, uh, just start these horrendous bands that we'd, you know, that weren't any good and then start another one and then start another one before landing on 16 and actually going to a studio and doing a demo. And then we're like, Oh, okay. So now, you know, we landed on something. Check it out. I'm excited to welcome mutant league records on board for this particular episode, because I get to talk to you about a awesome punk band called with the punches. They just released a new record that came out earlier this year, and uh, I highly recommend it. We're going to listen to a little bit of their song called Discontent, and it's their first album in nine years. Honestly, I had heard of the band's name before, and I've checked them out in the past, but listening to this, I was like, oh, yo, this is what sounds like you know, when adults get together and play punk, and it's awesome. So let's listen to a little bit of the song, but... I will include in the show notes for this particular episode a link in which you can view the music video that just came out for this, as well as being able to check out the record on streaming services, because that is the way to do it. So here is a little bit of With the Punches. great stuff so to be abundantly clear that song is actually called mirage but the record is called discontent just want to make sure clearing up any confusion there but like i said hop in the show notes for this particular episode and you will be able to check out a music video as well as stream the record on any of your preferred streaming platforms and check it out because i love it when bands come back and release some of the best music that they ever have Shout out to Mutant League Records. Check out what they have going on in general because they release some high quality punk, hardcore adjacent, you know, you know the deal. So Mutant League Records, check it out with the punches, check it out. And there, there's your homework. Thank you. And I think it's interesting too, at that time, especially within Orange County, I mean, you were watching all these bands, but then the youth crew scene and, you know, everything that was coming from not only the East Coast and Youth of Today and Bold and all those bands, but there was so many things popping off in Orange County with, you know, Chain of Strength and all that stuff. Um, did you go to those shows as well and enjoy that style of music, even though you might not have ever uh, called yourself straight edge? <laughs> um, you know what? No. Okay. Um, I, you know, I, I mean, I'm into hardcore now. I like to say, like, I, I discovered all of that and like in my thirties and totally blew it, um, you know, because it was going on all around me. And I was just like, I just wasn't into the clean cut straight edge. And then the whole, like, you know, fenders had this whole thing of just violence, you know, of, you know, those, those shows where, you know, there was like real punk gangs then that would skinheads and shit like that. Um, in that, and they were kind of in that scene. So it's just something I just avoided. And also I just, I, I don't know. I, I just, I always thought I was too cool, but when I, I actually sat down and listened to it, I was definitely not too cool. And it's amazing. Right. I mean, I just, you know, <laughs> and what? it's totally amazing. And then I really got into like, uh, you know, in my uh, late twenties, like when earth crisis happened, like, like destroy the machines. It's like, you know, another pivotal record for me. Uh, and you know, I was already playing in a band, uh, and I heard destroy the machines and I went to all those shows whenever they, I mean, I literally drove to Arizona one time to see air, uh, to see earth crisis. <laughs> that is smoking, I, smoking I, weed the whole time. Dude, yeah. I, but I, I, I love, I really love that description because, uh, the, the, that, that particular scene in the late eighties was so, like you said, clean cut. And there was that, you know, boy scout image that, you know, still permeates today as far as the uniform is concerned, but that, how that could be, you know, that can push people away just like on all of the things that you talked about. But then when you get into it, you know, at a, a later age where you're like, okay, I don't, I can still be this human being that likes this sort of music and obviously, you know, smoke weed and whatever. Like I don't, I'm not going to feel alienated by going to an earth crisis show because I'm smoking pot or whatever. It's like, this is cool. It's all part of the same thing. You know, the, the thing that turned me off about them, I'll totally be honest, was like the jocks were the enemy and those guys were jocks uh, in, in yeah, high school. Sure, sure. In high school, the jocks were the enemy. And I just felt 
Um, I just, you know, um, and again, that was just me being closed minded, to be honest with you. Um, but, you know, there used to be different camps back then. And like that all happened at Fenders or at Spanky's in Corona. And I went to a couple of those shows, you know, like I saw Rorschach, which was definitely amazing. Uh, at Spanky's and I saw the early helmet shows there, but all those straight edge hardcore shows, I mean, that scene peaked and then quickly disappeared in the nineties. So, you know, it was like, it just wasn't my style of things. But like I said, like now I'm all about it. (laughs) So, (laughs) well, and and I I think that's is what's so cool about being involved in these DIY cultures is like it doesn't matter when you arrive at a certain band or a certain scene. Like as long as you're open to it, you'll be able to you know find value. Like you said, you know, getting into destroy the machines. Like that's an incredible record, and like some people you know, may still be so just like anti that band because it's like, oh, like vegan straight edge. Like that's, you know, that sucks. And it's just like, well, just listen to music. And you're like, oh, this is really good. Uh, First of all, with global warming and everything, turns out they were right about everything. (laughs) Totally, totally. I mean, didn't they they have like an anti-smoking song on that, on that album too? Yeah. yeah. Oh, they totally did. Yeah. Asphyxiate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Exactly. I was, I was, I was going to call it carcinogen, but yeah. So they had asphyxiate. So no. And now I'm, uh, you know, 50 and I'm like, oh my God, those guys are right about everything. (laughs) You're a total idiot. That's so so funny. I love, I love to hear that. Um, I, I find it really cool that 16, you know, you guys were able to, like you said, say yes to a lot of opportunities and work with so many different record labels, um, you know, all really legendary in their own right from, you know, who you're working with currently in relapse all the way back to, you know, bacteria sour and working with Pusshead. He was always a huge advocate for the band. And I know that helped your name get out there in the underground scenes. Did you feel, I guess, immediately that like, Plus had, you know, kind of, you know, given you guys the cosign was like a big deal. I know it was probably a big deal for you guys internally, but did you notice that kind of reverberating around the, you know, proverbial scene? Um, no. Okay. Um, it didn't really, af- I mean, it affected us internationally, okay. but, but locally, you know, there were still 10 people at the show. So I, I just didn't care about it. And I, from a place of ignorance as a kid, um, I might've been like 19 when he wrote us. Um, I just thought that, you know, he was the Metallica guy and he's the guy that did all the Zorlac, uh, Zorlac graphics. I didn't know his full impact until later on, on hardcore, you know, on, on, on his bands, his art. Uh, you know, I did not know until I actually got to know him. Um, and no, no, I'm, you know, I'm forever in his debt. Uh, you know, he, he did give us the cosign that turned us you know, that got us a lot of international collector fans that are pro that are still here today that are, you know, customers that are nice people that, you know, you'd be in Germany and someone will show you a tattoo of the 16 logo that it was something that Puss had drew. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, we're forever in his debt of the nod, but at the time, no, I had no freaking clue. I was a total idiot. I did not know. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah, especially, like you said, once you see something, pardon the pun, like in the flesh of like, oh, my gosh, like, (laughs) this is, this is really much bigger than, you know, the uh, us dummies making music in a room or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you started to, you know, get out and play shows and start to, uh, you know, tour a little bit, whether it's just, you know, making quick trips to Northern California or whatever. Did you uh, like touring as you started to get out there? I, I did, but you know, it was, it was always very difficult for us, even in the, uh, the pessimizer days of Chris Elder. Yeah. Um, you know, poverty was a real thing for us. Uh, even though we come from Orange County, we're all like poor apartment dweller kids that, you know, we couldn't just go be homeless. We all had to have jobs to pay bills, you know, to have a place to live. Uh, so getting a van or doing anything like that was just totally out of reach. Um, so, you know, it was, it was never something that I could dedicate myself to until literally until later in life when I have the financial wherewithal now and stability that, yeah, now I can go on tour for maybe even a month and everything will be fine. Uh, but back then it was literally living hand to mouth. And then 
take on top. There was definitely mental illness uh, and drug use um, that makes it a hard thing for stability at that age. You know, you're in your early 20s. That's when mental health starts to really crop up. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, drinking drugs sure. and everything that's, you know, we, we all know where it ends. So, right. uh, and, and those are kind of lessons that we live, but, um, no, I mean, we, we still live for it though. You know, we would still do anything, uh, but it was never, you know, we, we could never tour, uh, like we should have, um, in those days with right. the, you know. So. Well, yeah, and at, and at that time too, that was you know there were many of those scenes that were being built up around the country where it was, it, it made it like you said, just the practicalities of you know getting a van or even getting a van with a trailer. It was like all the you know thousands of dollars of expenses, and you're just like, we can barely make five hundred dollars at like a local show. You know, it's like how are we going to do this? Oh, five hundred dollars would be amazing, right? Uh, you know, um, I mean. I lived in Newport Beach in a trailer, uh, in, in a trailer park by River Jetties, and I split it with like three other people. My rent was three hundred dollars, and I was still having problems. Uh, so, and, and again, uh, I was probably drinking and smoking my my paychecks away, anyways. But uh, you know, it was, right. we just weren't we weren't the most stable dudes at that era, but we were definitely motivated. Right. And, and I do find that that's always been kind of the push and pull with 16, just as an observer, where there is this dedication to the craft where you guys, you know, yes, there's maybe been fallow periods of you not releasing music, but generally speaking, it's like, you know, the train keeps moving. Like even when you were, you know, in the nineties, in the, into the early two thousands or what have you. And so like, it's sometimes hard to kind of marry those two ideas where it's like we're dedicated to the craft, but yet, you know, we're bogged down by, like you said, either, you know, mental health, drugs, or like these other things that pull you from the dedication, you know, it was kind of interesting. Uh, you know, and again, it was just like straight, uh, you know, poverty, uh, you know, I mean, not, and it's poverty in a weird area too, because, you know, Orange County is very affluent, but, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, we were, we were, and we were total scuzzy, you know, skater dudes right. who didn't care either. So, um, you know, putting in a plan, like I said, like getting a van was completely out of reach. No one even had a credit card to rent one. Um, you know. Right. Yeah. yeah. You, you were, yeah, like you said, very hand to mouth. And that was, um, you know, how it was uh, built. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that was our own fault. Yeah, right. <laughs> for sure. It was a uh, it was a feature, not a bug, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the um, I always noticed too, like the you know the aesthetic and the approach of the band was always very you know nihilistic, uh, negative in nature. You were focused on those elements, not only lyrically but musically as well. Were people, I guess, surprised when they interacted with you and you were you know yes maybe like crazy partiers or whatever, but like you were generally normal people or did they come into it being like, Oh, the guys in 16 are going to be like, you know, absolutely insane people. No, no. I mean, you know, we all, we literally have to have jobs, especially, you know, right. so I had to be like an employee and, and also, you know, those people tend to die. Uh, so, you know, when you meet someone who's completely crazy, the Seth Putnam's, the, the Gigi Allen's, they just, you know, they, they burn bright and, and fast. Um, but I, I liken our nihilism, uh, in terms of skateboarding, uh, where I was able to throw myself down flights of stairs or, you know, skate big ramps or whatever. That's the kind of nihilism where I just like, you know, we always used to say like, just punk it, like, just do it, just punk it. And, you know, say that skateboarding, like you're going to, you're going to force your body to do something where, you know, if you don't make it, you're going to lock up and get a concussion. Uh, and that's kind of the, the, the nihilism we had, which was more of a, just go for it. Um, so it really wasn't negative or, um, you know, maybe, uh, but then again, I'm speaking for myself. Uh, right. Chris, Chris definitely had a, a, a tougher road, I think mentally, uh, than, than I do. Evilgreed.net. 
has been a sponsor of this show for the past couple of months, and I could not be prouder to partner up with them. They are a web store solution company based in Berlin, Germany, but you as the consumer get to benefit from their highly, highly specific curated roster of bands and record labels that if you listen to this show, you like, I'm probably going to guess like 70 to 90% of the bands that they work with. So first and foremost, go to evilgreed.net and use this promo code 100 words that gets you 10% off your entire order. I know you heard me say Berlin, Germany, and you're like, oh my gosh, the shipping is going to be outrageous to me here in the United States of America. It is not. I've ordered from them and I've gotten my merch in like less than a week. And frankly, it kind of blew my mind, but that is why they want to reach out to you, the consumer that's based here in America and say, yo, can you ship me this? And they will be like, no problem whatsoever. They actually just recently launched a store with Soulblind, who, by the way, just released an amazing record on other people's records. But just to give you a little smattering of the type of bands that they work with, they also work with One Step Closer. They work with Triple B Records. They work with Gate Creeper, Nails, Blood Incantation. Like I said, if you like Anybody that I have on this show, most likely you will find a very cool web store run by the evilgreed.net people that ships you merch, vinyl, whatever it is you're ordering, they get it to you lickety split. So again, 100 words is the promo code, 10% off your order. Evilgreed.net is the place where you get it all and get it shipped to you fast. Thank you very much, Evilgreed. Especially too, where the people's expression of their art is, you know, either a more magnified version of themselves or, um, you know, there's always truth contained within that. And so each person's experience with what they're creating is going to, especially when you're a collective, like a band is, there's always going to be different shades of the same thing that are being expressed. Yeah. The, um, and then as the band, you know, like we were talking about earlier in regards to working with a lot of different, um, you know, seminal labels, uh, hooking up with uh, Chris Elder at, uh, you know, Pessimizer Records, like that, you know, a label that arguably no one should remember just because like, it wasn't like he took it quote unquote seriously. I mean, he was just putting out records from friends and, you know, building up a distribution network and stuff like that. And it's definitely lauded within that, um, you know, did you, I guess, do you reflect on the idea that you have been able to work with so many, you know, cool labels when realistically, um, you know, there might not have been those opportunities for you guys, uh, just because like, you're not an active touring band or whatever. Um, you know, um, it's, it all worked to our advantage, Mm -hmm. uh, as far as, um, building something but at at the time you're just you know again hand to mouth and you know chris wrote to us asked us to be on his uh you know cry now cry later comps and it was like you know spaz uh no comment fear factory dystopia um you know those were all of not our peers but people we knew and were friends with um, of course, Fear Factory would go on to, you know, great success. Um, and they were, they probably were successful then too. Um, but, you know, they were just, it was a cool scene. It was a definitely cool scene, the whole power violence scene. And the, the humor that uh, Chris Elder uh, put in his magazine, just, you know, he was just one of us. He was cynical like us. Um, I think he came from a place of struggle as well. Uh, you know, um, and so it just, it was like a fit, like, you know, he automatically just, you know, or like we, we bonded for sure on his uh, sense of humor and his aesthetic. You know? Right. Like, it's like, you got each other and it's like, Hey, let's put out as many records as possible and do as many, you know, comps as we can. You know, not predetermined, but sure. again, like back to the say, yes, it's like, what else are we going to do? You know, right. yeah. What else are we gonna do? Just sit on these songs? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so what were you? What were you guys? I guess subsisting on from a job perspective, as you were, you know, being able to play shows and record and stuff like that. Uh, what were you doing to, you know, keep the lights on, so to speak? I, uh, you know, I always kind of uh, not lucked out, but I've always, uh, I didn't go to college, uh, but I, I got into uh, like finance and banking. Uh, early. Uh, so I did okay. Um, mm-hmm. in a, in a, like a financial operations way, not like a, 
you know, super, super Wall Street guy, more of like an administrative assistant thing. But, you know, I could, I could hold it down and, uh, you know, contribute to practice space and contribute to recording uh, or just outright pay for it myself. Um, and, and, you know, other people, uh, Tony in the band, uh, you know, he worked, uh, he lived in Hollywood. Uh, so he worked um, some kind of showbiz adjacent job. And Chris, Chris always had a, a kind of blue collar uh, job, whether, um, you know, he used to work at the OC register as a pressman. Uh, so we were, you know, we were holding it down, so to speak. Right, right. Um, you know, in a, in a kind of a blue collar way. Um, you know, I, I just, I, I, like, I, I worked at a, you know, one of those office buildings near Fashion Island. Uh, oh sure, at, yeah, the, the, the Pimco a, offices, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a, a, at a, a finance place that financed uh, boats and RVs. I worked there for years. Okay, so you know, I, I we did okay. Right, right. Well, yeah. and I'm sure too. Like when people, if people got to know you individually and then knew you played in a band, like I'm sure there was some funny interactions from that perspective. To this day. You know, I generally don't tell anybody. Right. <laughs> Keep it on the DL, right? Yeah, I don't think it's advantageous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure, like when you're asking for a couple weeks off here, or there, like, I mean, yes, you don't need to disclose it to anybody, but um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> it just see it, you know, it's like, yeah, I just did two weeks in Europe, and they're like, what the hell are you talking about, Bobby? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a Mormon missionary, as far as they know. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's like a, a secret agent life, so to speak. Exactly. Clark Kent. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, like you were talking about earlier, what's, there's clearly no secret in how much the band has, you know, endured as far as lineup changes and, you know, because of substance abuse and a lot of other things, like you said, mental health, that was, uh, playing a part of that. Um, it's interesting to me, like it, it, that's always really gone hand in hand with this kind of style of music, whether you call it, you know, stoner metal sludge, whatever, like that (laughs) subgenre. Um, how, I guess, how did you personally be able to kind of like course correct? Like you said, you've always had jobs. So there was that level of responsibility, but you know, how did you, I guess, personally not get swallowed up by the, you know, darkness that sometimes hits people? Um, very, very, uh, closely to the edge sometimes. Uh Um, you know, um, I mean, what, what can I say? You know, you, you just become a functioning addict and it's no longer cool. Uh, yep. I'm just, just putting on my polo shirt, uh, and doing drugs, uh, you know, polo shirt for my casual Friday at the office and, uh, having to do drugs to not be sick is just, you can only do that for so long. Uh, when everyone around you starts going, are you, is there something wrong with you? (laughs) Sure. sure. You know, thinking, thinking you're pulling it off just because you're showing up someplace. Uh, but you know, you're white as a ghost and your, uh, your pupils are dilated. Uh, so, you know, you, you have your, uh, your realizations as they call it. And, uh, you know, everybody hits bottom in their own way. Um, and, the risks, the risks to your health, uh, are definitely a, a wake up call. Right. Yeah. <laughs> when you start to, um, experience certain things where it's like, Oh, my body feels completely different because I did this for way too long. And I, I, I can't even well, that, that, and you know, when you're hanging out, um, and in a world of hard drugs, you know, people start to die. Um, you know, either by suicide or by overdose. And, and this is like long before, uh, fentanyl or pharmaceuticals, you know, people were still dying from heroin and and speed. Uh, and you know, even though, you know, it, it affects you and that's, that's, you're kind of scared straight. You're like, just, you know, what am I doing and why, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Sure. Absolutely. Who would you say, uh, because usually once you, you know, start to play shows and, and tour and start to experience a little bit of that, uh, who would you say like your peer group was from a band perspective, like the ones that you bonded with the closest or, you know, played the most shows with or toured with the most, who would you say, uh, you know, fell into that category? Uh, you know, back then, uh, or, or like 
yeah, like I mean, it could be back then, it could be now. Yeah, a little, little uh, you know, um, I mean, we were definitely given great opportunities by Fu Manchu. Um, they were like kind of older brothers to us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were definitely given great opportunities by Fu Manchu, uh, with Unsane, uh, you know, with Hammerhead, uh, and people that we really looked up to their work ethic. You know, those guys would drive 500 miles, play a 35 minute set, set up their merch and then take the fuck off uh, and go to the next gig and do it. And we're just like, whoa, okay, this is how it's done. Um, You know, grief. We toured the East Coast with grief and it was like, you know, peaks and valleys, but it was good times and it was good sonically. Uh, We were a good matching with them on the East Coast. Um, You know, there's we were like uh, and we had good times with, uh, uh, you know. Uh, a few dates with his hero is gone. They were always very impressive. The oh, locust. that's incredible! I didn't, I didn't know that yeah. you guys uh, played some yeah. played some gigs with them. They're they're a band of yeah. like mythic proportions where no one knows anything about them yet. Obviously, their name lives on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dis, um, you know, dystopia. Um, yeah. You know, uh, Dino was always good friends. Uh, I knew Dino's brother Brian from skateboarding, uh, so we were around. Uh, you know, phobia, we were around uh, dystopia from our practice space. So they were always, you know, and those guys were always very inspiring because their dedication uh, of play anywhere. I mean, those, those guys would play in a fucking sewer and it'd be crowded and it'd be crowded and awesome. So, you know, like that, that kind of stuff was, was awesome. So, you know, we played really good shows up in, you know, um, when they had the epicenter maximum rock and roll in San Francisco, um, so, you know, we were given a lot of, uh, cool opportunities then that were, you know, seminal to us, to sure. our sound, to our sound and as like awesome examples. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. And that's, that's what is so cool about, you know, being able to pull from all these different scenes and play with bands. I mean, like you said, like grief is the one that you could, you know, maybe draw the straightest line between what you guys have done and continue to do. Uh, and sonically what they're doing, but then you can pull these different influences from all these bands that you just see and are like, wow, they're really good. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. The, uh, the band now seems to exist in what seems like a, you know, a healthy balance of playing shows and releasing music when you can, but then clearly not ever getting to that spot where it's like, all right, we got to be on the road 250 days out of the year. Um, I, I, I'm guessing, I mean, like you said, that's kind of the way the band has always existed, but it it seems to be the, I guess, healthiest (laughs) the past, like maybe five or so years. Would you agree with that? Or has that something that you've I don't know, probably 10 years. Oh, no, no. Uh, we, we probably play more shows now than we ever did. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we play all the time now. Um, it's just not feasible. I don't think people would even want to see us 200 days a year. Uh, you know, I, I don't know any booking agents that would do that. Sure. <laughs> you know, um, so there's also, you know, like a, I have a r- real sense or we, sh- I should say, have a real sense of who we're playing to and who we're not playing to. Um, and I, I just don't think it's economically feasible to tour that much, especially now after COVID. Um, you know, it's it, it it's it talk about living hand to mouth. Uh, it'd be like living hand to super eight to hometown buffet to gig to super eight to yes. gig you know uh with gas and you know i i just i don't see the benefit of putting ourselves and our families through all that for why um sure you know when we we can definitely do it on our terms now and if we get a festival gig or whatever we we can go right um, you know yeah you make it manageable right you yeah. you, you pick your spots and then you can I mean, realistically, probably enjoy it more now than you ever did in the past. Oh, now it's crazy meaningful, to be honest with you. Like now recording and creating is just like, you know, the the, the pinnacle. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, that's incredible. And being, I mean, you are, you have a, a child and, you know, he is a, a grown human being and watching probably him grow up and understand music and get into music. Uh, does he think that your band is dumb and not cool or what's the, what's the vibe there? Like how, how have you interacted with the 
you know, his getting into music? Have you, you know, tried to play a heavy hand in what he's getting into? No, no, I'm, I'm, you know, he, he's got to discover who he is and he has discovered who he is. Uh, but um, as far as like him, I'm, I'm sure he can appreciate it. And I could, I'm definitely the cool dad because, you know, um, I live in San Diego and, you know, a yuppie area where most of the other fathers just play golf or drink. Uh, so, you know, I, I go to band practice and I go on tour and I, I play gigs and that's what I do. And that's not what a bunch of other dads do around here mm-hmm. in the same kind of peer group, especially when he was a kid, you know, I mean, now he's 19 years old and, you know, he could give a shit what I do. Uh, you know, he's, he's got his own life. <laughs> now it's like, now it's, uh, you know, what's, what's now it's the cats in the cradle. So, you know, uh, uh, I'm like going into his room saying, what's up? And he's like, what do you want? Uh, you know. <laughs> you're like, I, I just, just want to hang out. You, you, you yeah. available? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just want to <laughs> see how you're doing, son. Okay. I'll be downstairs. Uh, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Thanks, thanks. The, uh, the last thing I want to hit on was the idea that, I mean, you guys, like you said, there was never this serious approach, like taking you know, a band, like a business where it's like, okay, you know, we got to uh, do these things in order to like make it in the music industry. But you, you've been able to navigate certain aspects of that, whether it's like working with a booking agent or, you know, working with record labels and stuff. How did you, I guess, navigate the business side of the band? Was that just a, I guess, necessary evil for you to deal with? Or did you enjoy aspects of it? I enjoy it. It's, it's just a common sense profit and loss balance sheet, you know, um, and then thinking, thinking long-term as well. Um, it's not like just because something doesn't make sense on paper, um, it doesn't mean we're not going to do it because we can take risks, um, and go on crazy adventures. Uh, and like I, like I said earlier, like 95% of the time it works out either break even or profit. And we had an amazing time and either gained fans or sold a bunch of merch or just had a crazy good old time or discovered a new band, made new friends, uh, you know, discovered another scene in some other part of the world that totally, you know, deserves uh, your attention. So, uh, you know, it's, it's all good in that aspect. Right. And I, like, I, and I, I look at it, it's not like, Ooh, music business. Cause I don't think the music business works out for anyone to be lonely, honest with you. It's like, you know, like how's your 401k doing in your hardcore band? Right. It's not, it's not, it's there, not, there is none. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like, you know, even like who you think, you know, uh, your, your friends with gold records are still really struggling. So it, it you know, it, I think it puts us in a, in a healthier position to create for real, because people see through that you have to do something, yep. you know, and you can hear it. You can hear it in a band that's just making a record so they can go on tour so they can get another advance. Uh, you can hear that stuff. Yeah. Um, and as opposed to someone who's got to release it because they're going to creatively explode and barf riffs out, you know, and that's how I feel kind of like we are. Uh, I feel like we kind of like, oh, like this is what we do. We have to do it. Right. Know? Yeah. There's no other, there's no other choice in the matter. It's a, a like, oh, we gotta, we gotta get on the next record cycle. It's like, no, that, that'll come when we have songs. <laughs> true. True. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, we're driving the process and creativity is the only thing that really drives that process. And there you have it. Thank you very much. Big shout out to Mike, his publicist, and big shout out to Bobby for hanging out with me on the podcast. And uh, it was fun because after we hung up, we just talked about Turmoil for like 20 minutes. And it was great because Turmoil is one of the best bands ever. So anyways, next week, it is honestly the episode that is probably one of my most anticipated of the year. I get people starting in November hitting me up about it being like, hey, when are you going to post that year end, that best of 2022 list? Well, I will keep you waiting no longer on December 21st. That is the Wednesday in which this episode gets dropped. It is the best of 2022 list. As long as we are able to record later in the week, barring any, um, you know, crazy emergencies, but myself, Joey Cahill from want to hear it records and six one three on records. And then Jeremy Bohm, the vocalist of touche amore and secret voice records. All the plugs are there. We are so excited 
because we love nerding out about this stuff. And I know you like finding out about new music. So that's what we got. Probably, you know, a seven hour long episode because we tend to just go on and on about our records. But anyways, that is what's up next week. The best of 2022. And uh, yeah, until then, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.